we, we, we were in the airport once, I remember, and someone yelled out, Pelham. And then we turned around and we had our little kids with us and all that stuff. And it was Marcus Allen who walked up and was like, Pelham, you know, and then, and then he's at these events with Alice Walker and with Henry Louis Gates and with all, you know, and he can interface and talk with all of these people and just, you know, he was just unique and he, and he often was surprised by how his life had turned out and how he was able to bridge all of these, you know, different things. Thank you for joining the program today. I'm Lily Rowe, the Community Outreach Archivist at Emory University Libraries, Stuart A. Rose, Manuscript, Archives, and Rare Book Library. And you are listening to Rose Library Presents Community Conversations, a series of interviews with people connected to our collections. This episode features an interview between Naval McDaniels, the widow of Dr. Pella McDaniels III, former curator of the African American Collections, and Dr. Randall Burkett, who established the African American Collections at the Rose. Thank y'all so much for agreeing to this uh, meeting today, this um, have mine. Uh, <laughs> so I think we'll get started first um, by saying the Rose Library was in shock in April when we lost Pella McDaniels. I've only worked at the Rose for two years, and I was very honored to work with Pelham. And I think his legacy will continue. And that legacy um, will continue on with Clint Fluker, who will be the next African-American curator. But I want to talk about the African-American collections. And I think my first thought I want to talk to Randall about. Tell us in your own words, like what brought you to Emory Rose Library? I have been a collector all my life. Um, Started collecting uh, ballpoint pens when I was a kid. I collected, <laughs> I collected a little of everything. Uh, but when I started uh, graduate work in African American studies and African American history, um, I started collecting books, especially because the the university uh, where I was doing my 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 PhD did not have a a major collection of African American materials. And since I love to collect, and since often my wife wasn't around when I saw the book list or uh, went to a rare book catalog, a, a bookstore, I, I was able to acquire uh, a substantial collection of rare Afro Americana. At a certain point, uh, through uh, Rudolph Bird, the late Rudolph Bird, whom I knew from my previous work at the Du Bois Institute at Harvard, where he had been a fellow. Uh, He knew I was uh, ready to make a move from the Du Bois Institute and invited me to come down and to consider being the curator of of African-American collections. At that point um, in 1997, I think we had two manuscript collections uh, created by uh, people of African descent. I remember when I interviewed for the job, then head of the university library, Joan Gottwalls, and I talked, and I said, well, what would be a collection that would be sort of beyond what would be possible for us to get at Emory? Uh, And she said, if you say that it's a collection Emory should have, I will do everything in my power to find the money to make it possible. And I said, I'll take the job. (laughs) That was easy. (laughs) My wife never said that to me. (laughs) That's for sure. So uh, I started the collection and uh, working with uh, Rudolph Bird and then with one of his uh, Cracker Jack graduate students, uh, Palin McDaniels, uh, who worked as a research assistant for me. Um, and we developed a, a wonderful uh, friendship and a wonderful relationship. And um, so it was, it was, uh, it was always then, then my hope after, after I wasn't sure how long he was going to want to stay in Atlanta or how long Nabob was going to want to stay or their beautiful children were going to want to stay. Uh, but it turned out that we had, we had a fab, we had a wonderful rapport. 
Pelham and I. Uh, we really worked well together, um, but he brought distinctive uh, his dis- dis- distinctive character, his uh, charisma, his his engagement with people. He was such a an extraordinary person and uh, one of the people I most uh, whose friendship I cherish the most. I, I remember saying to my wife at a certain point, "There is no one." I can think of in all the people working in special collections libraries around the country um, to whom I'd rather turn uh, the Emory collection than to Pelham. And Nawab, can you tell us how did Pelham take his path to becoming a scholar and, and arriving at the Emory Rose library? Uh, and I just want to say thanks Randall for those kind words. Um, yeah. His path to academia was I don't know if everyone knows, but Pelham, you know, had quite a life uh, before he came to academia and um, was a professional athlete for many years. And uh, while he was playing for the Kansas City Chiefs um, and living in Kansas City just a couple of years before we married, so the mid-1990s, which, you know, says how old we are. And um, he he started taking some history classes at the um, university there in the off season. Um, A lot of people probably don't realize, but um, not all professional athletes, you know, are able to set themselves up, you know, with all their money and all their stuff and whatever, you know, so they do things in the off season to prepare themselves for life after that. So they're pursuing other interests. Some people did banking, some people did coaching, some, you know, just whatever you're interested in. And Pelham, um, went to graduate school um, and took history classes. And he had some TV shows on the side and things like that. Um, But he had a lot of different interests. But so anyway, how it happened was he had played for the Kansas City Chiefs. And then as things happened, he got picked up by the Atlanta Falcons when his contract was up. And so we were here in Atlanta. We had uh, read the announcement that uh, Henry Louis Gates would be um, talking about the Encarta Africana, which had just been um, published um, and so this must have been in 2000, um, 99, 2000. And, um, we went to that presentation. And so that was a thrill for us, you know, to see Henry Louis Gates and cause we just read about him. And, um, and at that event, um, through a friend of a friend, Pelham had heard about Dr. Rudolph Bird, who Randall mentioned before, um, Pelham, approached Dr. Bird after the event to ask about the ILA and to ask about pursuing um, graduate studies. And I remember, you know, Dr. Bird was, you know, Pelham called him an elegant specimen. Of <laughs> he was just so handsome and dapper and just graceful. And he just looked at Pelham through his glasses with his blonde. He was like, hmm, this is interesting. And so, you know, um, So I think, uh, you know, Dr. Bird was intrigued by Pelham and Pelham was, you know, really interested. We read about the ILA and it seemed like a good place for him with his diverse interests. He decided to apply to the ILA. We decided that that was a worthwhile path for him to pursue once he had retired. Um, And in that year, he retired um, from the NFL in 2000 and um, he applied to the ILA and he was accepted and um, you know, one of the things that people don't know is that uh, that summer, so the acceptances come out, you know, February, March, something like that. Pelham was was accepted, but he really was not prepared for the depth of conversation and scholarship that he was going to have to engage in when he got onto Emory's campus. Um, and that's, you know, obviously it's just the, conver- you know, the environments he had been in, you know, hadn't sort of laid that real strong foundation for that. So Dr. Bird, um, you know, was his mentor and he took him in hand and gave him a list of 100 books. And so in the summer when classes were out, he and Dr. Bird uh, met, uh, I think once a week. um, And he read every single one of those 100 books from May through August. And they discussed those books to make sure that he had a foundation and a proper way to go forward. And and he would feel comfortable in dialogue with the professors and the other students who had long been preparing for this type of work. And he just hadn't. Um, And so he did that. And and I remember he told me that Dr. Bird said he knew he he was ready to come to Emory and this was a good decision for him when they were talking about a particular book. And, um, and Pelham said, oh yes. 
And she mentioned this other book. And so I read that too, because I wanted to know what that was all about. And so Dr. Bird knew when he was veering off the reading list and still reading, you know, and so I would, he probably read 150 books in those few months. And, you know, I just also wanted to say that Pelham was just, um, you know, deeply committed to whatever he did. And I don't know how many, how many people know everything he did before he came um, to Emory. He was always sort of like dumbfounded, like, I've done this before, you know, like uh, he would give ideas at work and he'd be like, I don't know why people aren't listening to me. <laughs> I've done this before. Um, yeah. I, so as I was kind of making notes, I just wanted to say for those people who were just unaware of kind of just the depth of person he was, you know, he was supposed to be drafted out of college into the NFL and through whatever happens, you know, it just happens. He wasn't. And, uh, but he had prepared for that and he had interviewed with Procter and Gamble. And so he was a sales manager in Oregon for about a year, year and a half, um, and trying to decide what he wanted to do with his life. And uh, so basically, he kind of worked his way back into the league when his sales manager challenged him um, and said, you know, don't you think if you were good enough that you would be playing? And Pelham was just like, you know, okay, whatever, I'll show you. And that's just kind of his, the way that he did his work, you know, that he lived his life. It was more like, I can do that. And, um, and he would outwork anyone he outpassioned people, and they had something they said about him when he was in the ILA that um, that you got pelhamed, like you thought you were ahead of everyone, you know, and you were getting the work done on time, and then and then he would get it done first, and he would do it better, and they would say, "Oh, you got pelhamed on that one, didn't you?" Created and patented a dental product that we eventually sold to Procter and Gamble. He uh, he got an idea when he was at the dentist one day, and uh, and came home, and uh, and it was a a dental lubricant, basically, because they were in his mouth doing some kind of long procedure. I can't remember what it was. Um, and he just was like, do you have some Vaseline or something I can put around my mouth? Um, because your, you know, your hands are just irritating. And, um, and they said, oh, no, there's nothing like that. His dentist said, oh, no, there's nothing like that. He goes, but it's a good idea. If I make any money off of it, I'll let you know. You know, I'll give you a little credit when I, when I make some money. And then Pelham was like, I bet I can do that. And so he came home and he, you know, just started mixing things up and trying to get ideas and stuff. And he, and I was like his guinea pig. We didn't have any kids at that time. And so he, yeah, he came up with this idea. He found a chemist who could put the formula together. He um, found a packaging company that would make it and package it. And he filed for the patents and the trademarks and all of that stuff. And so um, that was, again, you know, just like, I can do that. You know, he was just fearless and he didn't, he didn't care about failing. That was just, you know, a, a way not to do it next time. So, yeah. And he did that while he was, while he was in the NFL? He did. Yeah. We were selling that product in 1999, 2000, probably up until, up until we sold the patent. We, but we were mostly selling it in the early, the early aughts, the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and what you said about, I bet I can do that. Mm-hmm. That sounds like Pelham. Yeah, That's totally. the Pelham I work with. Mm-hmm. When we needed a um, um, something done and he was like, yeah. you know, I can do that. Like yeah. on the Frederick Douglass event that we worked on the Bicentennial, he was like, yeah, I could, I could try to make something that, and he made this beautiful thing and it was like, yeah, I can do that. And that was his mentality. It sounds like that was his mentality from the very beginning. For everything. He could do mm-hmm. everything. And, um, and he did it well. That's the, that's the whole thing. And the thing that he also really enjoyed was encouraging other people to also feel like you can do that. And you can do it well. You just have to just try and don't be afraid. So yeah, he was, so that's, that's, um, you know, and he did other things. He had published two books and things like that. So, you know, he was just a singular human being and, um, and there aren't very many people like that. Um, so, you know, um, and that's how he was able to switch from a professional athletic career where there's very few intellectual conversations happening <laughs> to a career in academia and, and also still be, you know, comfortable in those rooms with people and be able to dialogue with them. And then he also, um, you know, um, I'm trying to remember, someone said something about him, uh, you know, he approached this with grace and humility. He didn't ever come in and say, this is who I am and this is what I did and blah, 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 blah. He just, you know, and that's how he was able to do this. 
One of the conversations I've, I had, I remember having with him was about football because I am um, a 49ers fan. I, I grew up in the era of Joe Montana. And so uh, January 2020, we're talking about the Kansas City Chiefs in the and at, at going to the Super Bowl. And I just like I, I kind of like in the back of my mind, kind of remember that he played for Kansas City, mm-hmm. but I didn't realize what era. And no. I was just like, I was <laughs> like, yeah, the only time I ever rooted for Kansas City was when Joe Montana yeah. played as the yeah. quarterback because mm-hmm. he's my who he's who I am. Um, idolized and who I, I hold every other quarterback accountable for. Cause mm-hmm. I've seen with, with Montana and the 49ers with, with mm-hmm. Jerry Rice, like them come back and it's in two minutes. Like mm-hmm. that to me is the ultimate thing. And so mm-hmm. it was, he, he kind of, he looked at me, he kind of laughed and he was like, you know, I play with Montana. And I was yeah. like, what? <laughs> okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You are the ultimate Renaissance man in yeah. my eyes. Like yeah. he just yeah. can do everything. The other thing I, I want to talk to you too about is his artistry. Mm-hmm. Like that is something that I'm discovering that, you know, he was a, he was a talented artist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like what, what inspired him to, to do art? I guess it's just like, is it just with everything else? Like I can do that. Is that the same mentality? He, um, in terms of the art, he was always an artist. Um, he, uh, the original agreement had been when he went to he went to college at Oregon State University on a football scholarship, and um, the original agreement had been that he could be a fine arts major at Oregon State. And um, so he got on campus. He was, you know, he was going to pursue fine arts and he went to go buy the art supplies, which are the most expensive part of that major. And he found out that the football scholarship didn't cover the supplies. They would let him do it, but they weren't going to pay for his art supplies. And he, um, you know, he couldn't pay for that on his own. He was he was there on a scholarship and his parents couldn't his grandparents raised him and they weren't going to do that. They weren't able to do that. So, um so that sort of got a little bit sidetracked. He became a um, communications and political science major instead. Um, but he was always just doodling, always doing all kinds of things. He had a fashion design company briefly, too, in Kansas City. So he would sew and design clothes and had a fashion show. So he's just a really creative person and just really talented, um, had been taught to sew by his grandmother and um but he really um, became more involved in his artwork uh, the year before he started uh, graduate school. Um, he'd had an injury um, with the Falcons. And so he basically had a year off kind of um, where he was rehabbing. And so he just spent a lot of time creating art. And then once he started the program, he would take, you know, he would take that energy and those ideas that he had from all the reading he was doing and he would make it into a piece of art Um, because, you know, he didn't, he didn't have like vices to kind of deal with the stress of reading about all of this stuff, you know, that had happened to um, African-American people over these, it was just maddening to him and, and it would, cause him a lot of stress just to read that and, and, and be immersed in that all the time. And he was so proud of everything that these people had done, you know, all these, you know, his, his ancestors. And so he would create these pieces of art, um, from his work. And so like the very first one, um, that he created from that is a big, um, portrait of Joe Lewis, um, cause he studied, um, the African male athlete and their impact on 20th century America. That's what his, um, dissertation was about. And, um, so he created that piece for, uh, for an exhibition, uh, related to the ILA. I can't remember exactly, but I remember being there holding our son Ellington and he was like one, he was a baby. So it was a long time ago, but Pelham had created this big piece and it was Joe Lewis as a Messiah figure. And then he got a cabinet and, put inside of it a recording of, you know, a way to play this song um, about Joe Lewis. Um, And it was this sort of experiential, you know, art piece. And when he got to the show, I remember people just being, they were like, oh, we thought you were joking that you were an artist. And he's like, no, I'm an artist. So yeah, so our house has a lot of his work in it. Um, And then I also, I also think that, um, gave him the ability really to engage with artists and appreciate their contributions and understand 
third nature. You know, he really understood the creative nature. Um, and that's one thing, you know, I learned a lot of things from Pelham. Um, and one of the things too was understanding creative people because they are distinct and individual and you have to support them because they cannot live without the support of other, you know, you know, they can't, they can't breathe without being able to express their creativity. And he was the same. So, um, and that's why he did all those things like to do the Frederick Douglass things was, you know, a labor of love for him. And, uh, I just wanted to say something funny when you're talking about Joe Montana, the funny thing about Pelham, and he was constantly a little bit surprised about how his life had turned out because he, so I'll tell you, like, Joe Montana doesn't, you know, he played with so many people and, you know, there's there's a lot going on there. He met a lot of different people, but Pelham would occasionally run into him at different things or whatever. And they had just played, I think they played together for two seasons or whatever. And he didn't remember other people that he played with, you know, because Pelham was in defense and Joe Montana played offense. And, um, but he saw him in a restaurant once and I don't remember where it was. It might've been in Kansas city or someplace else, but he remembers he stood up and he's like, Pelham, you know? So, and then, you know, and then we, we, we were in the airport once I remember and someone yelled out Pelham. And then we turned around and we had our little kids with us and all that stuff. And it was Marcus Allen who walked up and was like, Pelham, you know, and then, and then he's at these events with Alice Walker and with Henry Louis Gates and with all, you know, and he can interface and talk with all of these people and just, you know, he was just unique. And he and he often was surprised by how his life had turned out and how he was able to bridge all of these, you know, different things. I remember Pelham and I were eating at a restaurant and uh, we were uh, we were having having a dinner uh, at a restaurant in New York. We'd gone up to look at Camille Billups and Jim Packer's collection. The the restaurant was quite a ways from the street, but he saw this woman walking by and he jumped up and it was Billie Jean King. And he rushed over and said, Billie Jean King, I am so thrilled to meet you. And she was astonished. That didn't look like the Billie Jean King that I remembered from when she was, I mean, she had matured, shall we say. (laughs) We all have. (laughs) It was just, uh, it it was, that it was a a typical, uh, a typical. Pelham. And I'll say another, one of the special characteristics is how, how interested he always was in other people. He wasn't, he wasn't focused on himself. He was focused on the person that he was talking to. So it was a, 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 a prospective freshman or a, a doctoral student or, or a faculty member. He really engaged people, drew, drew them out, was interested in them. And it, it was clear that uh, I mean, his his personality came through in such a way that people would open up to him. And he and I had offices across the hall on the third floor of the library. And there was always a, a line of people uh, waiting to get in to talk to him. And he, uh, he would stay as long as anybody was there to talk. Yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. Offer good advice or just listen, whatever. But, he was a connector. He connected people, ideas, things. Um, he introduced me to Lou Gossett Jr. when he came. Yeah, and I'm a I'm a huge nerd. Um, did I say, um, Mr. Gossett, I loved you in uh, Roots? No. Did I say <laughs> I loved you in Officer and a Gentleman? No. I said I loved you in Enemy Mind, right. and a pure <laughs> sci-fi movie with Dennis Quaid that he did that I just loved, right? Because it teaches tolerance, mm-hmm. and the, the depth of his acting is so cool under all of that makeup. And that, and as I, because you know, I introduced myself and I walked out the door, and I and later I was like, Pelham, I said I liked him in Enemy Mind. I was like, oh my goodness, and he just laughed. He just laughed, but he um. He was always aware of how history connects us, right? And it's more than just the the um the paper products that that people have, right? It's it's film, it's it's artwork, and and I want to talk about the collections and how not only did the Pelham see that connection, but how you Randall decided on what the Rose Library contains. As as an African American kid growing up. I was not taught about African-American history, right? Mm -hmm. In the 1960s, I was basically taught that all racism ended. The only thing I was taught about African-American history was that 
we were slaves mm-hmm. instead of we were enslaved. Mm-hmm. And um, I would always have this conversation with Pelham, how um, I'd had a, a conversation with um, a former donor that I work with in, in Charlotte called Teresa Elder, who also passed away in, in January, a conversation of being like, well, no, I don't really want to study African-American collections because in my mind, it was, it was always heartache. But when I look at the, the items the breadth of items that we have, which I'm still learning in my two years, there's so much power. Mm-hmm. There's there's so much diversity. And and it talks about not just like it's everything from, um, a, you know, the, the, the tangible items you can hold, like the W.H. Scott sword to a, a crystal ball to Alice Walker's papers. And it's um, it's so like I know our instruction archivist, um, Gabrielle Dudley, you know, shows these items to people we um and teaches them like she doesn't just show them she educates people on on their like what they mean because it's more than just an object right it has a a story behind it so can y'all both talk to to me about that like that that element of like collecting in archives and the connections as i mentioned I, i i come from a family of collectors and i started collecting uh for myself early and as soon as I started to uh, started in graduate school, uh, especially because uh, in, in the program I was in and at the university, the University of Southern California did not have a significant collection of African-American materials. I remember I remember the first book that I bought for Emory was um, uh, Phyllis Wheatley's Poems on Various Subjects. The, the collections have really grown um far beyond, I think, anything that Emory ever intended for them <laughs> to, to yeah. I mean, when Jordan Gottwell said, well, if you say we should have it, I'll do everything to make it possible. I don't know that she really intended that in quite the way it turned out. And I'm happy to say that uh, when I when I, I passed the torch, uh, well, I shared the torch with Pearl yeah. for a long time, and we, yeah. we had so much fun together. And yeah. You know, I would, you know, he would, he'd walk across and I'd see this large shadow and, and the wind through the window, uh, the opaque window of my door. And I'd say, come on in, Pelham. And we would chat for 15 minutes or an hour and 15 minutes or whatever our schedules permitted. From my point of view, we had a, we had a fabulous relationship. And I think maybe I said earlier there was, there's no one that I would rather have turned this collection over to than to Pelham. I knew that he knew the importance of the books and of the manuscripts and the photographs and the documents and the importance of the history that, and, it, and how important these materials were to the people who owned them. And, uh, uh, you know, I would pack, we would pack up collections and the people who had them would have tears in their eyes as we were. They wanted us to have them, right? But they didn't want to let them go either. <laughs> these were uh, family. These were materials that meant a great deal to them. And one one of the things we tried to assure them was that they're going to they're going to mean a great deal to Emory University and to our students and to faculty and to scholars around the world who are going to come and use this collection. I remember a woman named Gladys East. She was a missionary in in uh, West Africa. I met her in Philadelphia. I can't remember how I connected with her, but um, she said, "Well, I said we'd be very interested in, in in your papers." And she said, "Well, I don't I don't have any papers." And I said, "Well, don't you have any documents or letters?" Well, she said, "I did write a letter to my mother every week for oh. fifteen years while I was in Liberia." And I have all, would those be of interest? (laughs) That's what we call papers. (laughs) And we would love to have those. And uh, so part of it is, part of the role of the curator is to to educate people about the importance of the materials that they have and why it might be appropriate. Maybe it's appropriate for them to keep them. Maybe it's appropriate Mm -hmm. to give them to their to their heirs, to their children, but maybe it's appropriate to put them at a place where anyone, uh, um, whatever age, from wherever in the world, wants to use the materials can do that. 
Mm-hmm. And, and um, so we really, we really have, have built one of the great research collections at historically white research universities. <laughs> I like to describe Emory as a historically a, white. <laughs> but I always said we're trying to get over. It. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I think it, it's a place where people can feel comfortable. Anyone can feel comfortable using our collections. We want them used. It's not like you. Have, I mean, there are a few things that one needs to wear gloves in order to use, like because the oil on your hands, so and so and so. But 99 times out of 100, the, the, the materials have lasted for a long period of time, not very good conditions, and now they're well stored, they're well processed, they're in acid-free folders where that's appropriate. They're going to be available uh, as long as the library is uh, sitting where it is, and and, mm-hmm. and so people have, uh, and and Pelham had that. Pelham was ex- was extraordinary in his ability to put people at ease, to give them a sense that their materials are going to be valued, and processed, and taken care of, and used. Thinking about also um, the recent uh, passing of Hank Aaron mm-hmm. and um, Naval, the story you told earlier of um, a boss telling Pelham that he couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. He didn't mm-hmm. think like if he could if he could have uh, played in sports and he would have been like recruited. Um, it reminds me of some of the material the. Um, uh, and I'm not a baseball person, but the scouting sheets of Aaron saying like right. all of the things that he could not do. And I, I think just realizing that, yeah, Hank Aaron and, and Pelham are kind of similar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're, they're each superstars, I will say. Yeah. yeah. Well, right? like, <laughs> and you have to be a particular kind of person to be an athlete. I mean, there are certain things you learn through athletics and certain personality traits that you take into athletics that allow you to have longevity. And one of those is just that willingness to fail and get up again Mm -hmm. and the willingness to try things that people said you couldn't do. Um, So that's, that's a, that's a big thing. Um, Actually one of the, and I would almost say one of the things Pelham was really most proud of uh, that he did as curator of African American collections, co-curator with Randall, I think at that time when he first got here was Hank Aaron's, um, you know, they acquired the hate mail that Hank Aaron mm-hmm. had received in his run to the, to the record he was, he was pursuing. Um, and there was, uh, a student and I'm trying to remember his name because he sent a card here last year, which I thought was very mm-hmm. sweet. Um, and he had been a baseball player at Emory, um, as an undergraduate and he, so the same thing you did. He was he he found out in a class that that Hank Aaron's uh, scouting records and things were there, and so he just went up there for fun to yeah. look at it and see what it was. And he discovered that Hank Aaron was bad at the same things he was bad at, and so he just found <laughs> a relationship with him in the archives. And then Pelham was there with him and said, "How would you like to help me do an exhibition about this?" And he was like, "What?" And, you know, he was like 19 or 20 or something. And he was like, why do you want me to do it? He goes, because you can. And that was the whole thing. And then he came and brought two of his other friends who were baseball players. And they created this exhibition, which was really amazing. Floor um, on the main, where you come in, mm-hmm, a wonderful mm-hmm. exhibition. And, and they were so proud. And they brought yeah. all of their teammates, classmates in. It was, a, it was really um, a wonderful Mm-hmm. allow them to see what they could do with these materials. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. And he said, oh, shoot, if I saw his name, I'd remember it. But anyway, he, he sent a card here and he said that, you know, he had never experienced that before or since really that someone who was older than him, who, you know, was accomplished would just take such a sincere interest mm-hmm. in him and allow him to do something that he would have never had the opportunity to do otherwise. So, and that's, and that's one of the things that, that Pelham could do. And he was very comfortable doing that, giving other people opportunities, but also to help people see themselves in the archives and, and see you know, that you have things in common with these people and it only takes, you know, the time to come and look 
and for someone to share it with you. Um, And that I think was really special about Pelham. He was always sharing information and always, you know, sharing with people about really their own greatness. And it reminds me of of two stories. One of them, um, he talked about when he was in Kansas City um, working one of the charities, I believe he worked um, mm-hmm. with, with K through 12. And there was a young girl, um, well, many kids that he helped. And this um, young girl wrote him a letter, mm-hmm. an email. And she was, I think, a teenager, a little bit older talking about the help and he always had that foundation even with um when he came uh, a few years well about 2018 2019 um speak what must be spoken um the other story is about the young kid uh, the middle schooler and i believe a sixth grader mm-hmm. they were installing um this exhibit mm-hmm. and um it was still raising hell mm-hmm. yeah. and uh the little kid came up to him and said yeah i'm gonna raise hell too uh-huh. and he was like yes but then they had to change the name right. because hell was not really good right. for right, right. they didn't want a bunch but, of kids going around saying they were raising yeah. hell all the time but yeah. but it, but i would love to know that little kid like the things that he will go because this person decided that they wanted to educate K through 12 and put that exhibit, mm-hmm. which um, the people that that exhibit is based on, Randall, you could probably speak a little bit more about um, Camille. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. They were, they were um, two really extraordinary people. She, uh, Camille was an artist, filmmaker, um, documentarian, uh, uh, Jim was a historian of African-American theater. Uh, they had bought a floor of a factory at, uh, in Soho at Broadway and Broom, and um, it was a huge space. And every two, every week or every two weeks, they would have conversations with artists, writers, poets, literary and cultural figures of all sorts. And because they had all this space and, and people and there would be between 10 and 50 people who would come to these conver- these informal conversations that uh, Camille and Jim hosted, or sometimes they'd bring somebody else in to moderate the conversation. Uh, but then a lot of times people would say, you know, I really don't know what to do with my stuff. I don't know that I want to give it here. I don't want to give it there. Uh, would you be interested in having it? Well, all of a sudden, I mean, all of a sudden over 50 years <laughs> or so, they, they gathered a huge uh, archive of books and manuscripts and photographs and periodicals, and they really weren't quite sure what to do with it. And I learned about that collection from one of our other donors, a man named Michel Fab, who founded the Center for African American Studies at the University of Paris and whom I'd known before I came to Emory. And uh, we ended up getting the Michel and Genevieve's papers as well. Another one, another one of those trips to Paris that we needed to make. Um, it's work that has to be done, you know. <laughs> but, Must be by someone, yeah. <laughs> but it, it was um, Camille and Jim were just such extraordinary, extraordinarily interesting people. And um, and they immediately, I had developed a, a longstanding relationship with them, and they decided at a certain point uh, that they were going to put their collection at Emory. In fact, I remember Camille said, now, you know, this collection's for sale. I said, well, Emory, Emory buys collections. That, that's fine. I said, the other thing is you, you might want to consider, if you were to donate the collection, you, you might want to have um, fellowships in, in your and Jim's name. You might want to have a a special room, the the Billups Hatch room. I didn't say the Hatch Billups room. I put the Billups. Yeah, you have to. Right yeah, on. you had to do that. Yeah, of course. They had the Hatch Billups collection down there. They did Billups Hatch collection, yes. and Camille did not mind that one bit. Right, right, right. <laughs> Instead of selling it, you donate it. We could establish fellowships. We have a space for you, and we ended up. Uh, and I think the, most of the work. I don't know for the nomination was done by Pelham, but the, each of them got honorary degrees from Emory, um, and and they were they were really not only thrilled to have their materials here, but Camille was very um, 
she, she wasn't evangelical about a lot of things, but she became very evangelical about Emory. And she would oh. talk to people and say, what are you going to do with your stuff? You should give it to Emory. <laughs> and a lot of people did. And, you know, the networks of people who were associated with other people whose papers have come. Um, and, and Pelham was uh, uh, extremely adept at, at doing that, at finding out who were the friends of people whose collection we have, would you give, give an introduction um, so that the collection really has built on material that's come before. And, and, uh, and I have to say with, with uh, Clint Fluker, who was a student of Pelham's, and worked uh, with me and Pelham as the, as the incoming curator of African-American collections, uh, I am absolutely confident that African-American collections are going to continue to be a centerpiece of uh, what uh, the Emory Library, the special collections, the Emory University is going to be known for because we have wonderful materials. We, we bring people in. I remember we had uh, the four African-American women's literary clubs in Atlanta, uh, four particularly prominent ones. At one point, I... I invited all the members of all four of those clubs over for lunch in the Jones room. And we had like hundred people and we talked about what we were doing and, but it wasn't, it wasn't a heavy handed thing. It was just a come and have lunch and see what we're doing. And then we gave them a tour. Um, and you know, it, it, all of those kinds of things uh, are, are part of the outreach and the connection that, that, that Emory has made, um, Emory is often seen as sort of distant from the Atlanta community. Well, we, we have become a, a centerpiece for, for scholarship around Atlanta, along with the, the History Center and the Auburn Avenue Research Library and Clark Atlanta University. Uh, we try, try not to get in the way of one another those institutions. Our real focus materials outside of the Atlanta area, but in the core uh, we know these many years we have ended up with quite a few uh, Atlanta area collections as well. And you know, a few books, I think we have 15 or 18,000 African-American authored books. Yeah. Uh, and that was one of the things that I wanted, I wanted to collect was I wanted to, to make certain that the African-American voice was at the center of African-American collections. So African-American authored, African-American published, African-American illustrated books uh, and every book that's illustrated by an African-American, a catalog entry, African-American illustrator, Ox or whomever. Like talking about Pelham and, and the things that he acquired, what would have been the item that he would have wanted the most? Um, I can say, and then maybe Randall, you might yeah. know some other yeah. ones. Um, and I did... Uh, I know that he wished Emory had acquired the papers of Gordon Parks. That was mm. uh, that was available, I think, right before he came back, and uh, that was a missed opportunity. And uh, he, he didn't ever stop talking about that. <laughs> so, it broke my heart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, um, and then I he personally. It took me a little bit of time to remember. Um, he personally was working on trying to collect Bill Adler's papers, who mm -hmm. was a journalist and um, and mostly focused on hip hop music. Yeah. Uh, and he had met with him several times. He spent a lot of time trying to do that. And uh, Bill Adler was moving a lot more quickly than than. Uh, then the Rose Library was was moving, and uh, the uh, materials went to Cornell, and he was crushed, and um, and still, you know, t probably talked about that <laughs> up until early last year. He just was crushed because he, you know, he saw all these different things that the African American community did. Hip hop was an extension of history, creativity, literature, everything, mm -hmm. and so, and yeah. you know, and. And as someone of uh, in our age group, you know, in his fifties, you know, that was a huge influence on him. So he, you yeah. know, of course, and he and Atlanta is such a, you know, a place where there's a lot of hip hop. Um, so it seemed like it would have been a good fit, and he really tried to get that one. Um, but I know that Clint Fluker um, 
has this, has similar interests. So hopefully that's a collecting area that will that will open up. And Pelham was also in talks with um, Kevin Powell right before uh, Pelham passed away, um, who is you know an author, hip hop um, poet, journalist scholar and all of those things. So hopefully th- that was one area that he wanted to open up more. And then he had been um, brought here to bring in more papers for, from um, sports figures and athletes. And that also kind of just didn't quite gel as, as quickly as he had hoped. So those are, those mm-hmm. are some areas that, um, that he would have liked to have brought more in. Well, I just want to say thank you both um, so much because I've learned a lot more um, about Pelham and more about the African-American collections. And um, I'm very honored to be here today. And I hope that our guests um, will have that insight and and have that connection and be inspired to be a Renaissance person Mm -hmm. um, that you, if somebody says you can't do it, just know that you can do better. Yeah, anybody think you can do it? Um, I just wanted to say one other thing too that that Pelham really he always felt like Emory University and the Rose Library should be honored that African Americans were selecting to place their materials at Emory, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. Um, He said they lived their lives, they endured everything they had to endure to still be here. And, and that was, I think, one of the, one of the most phenomenal things about him was just the level of respect and honor and things. He treated every person like that, every person he came in contact with, but then African-American people, he had just had such respect for, you know, their lives and the endurance and everything that they had experienced in their lives. And so um, that's something also that I I would like, I think people are aware of that, but I think it's really good to be said that he really felt like he was honored that they chose to place the materials there. Um, and, it, and it wasn't the other way around, you know. Absolutely, so. yeah. It was a matter of earning the, the, the respect mm-hmm. and the recognition. This was of enormous importance to Emory. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's important to them to have their collections mm-hmm. in a safe place where they're mm-hmm. made available. Mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, of equal or greater importance to have those, have these rich materials mm-hmm. uh, that, mm-hmm. that are at the center of the American story. Totally. Yes, yes. absolutely. Exactly. This is what, uh, this is what America is about. It's about the interaction of white and black over 400 years. This is who yeah. we are. Yeah. So that um, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's it's the most natural thing in the world for Emory to be gathering these materials. Along with all the other institutions around the city and around the country, there, there's there's uh, so much more than any institution uh, can collect. We all all of the institutions. We have archival materials that want to preserve American history uh, and culture uh, need to find the right place, whether it's Emory or Park Atlanta or the Schomburg or Yale or wherever materials. This is, uh, this is about, uh, about the nation. It's about the meaning of America, about who we are. And, uh, so it's not about them. I don't feel as a non-black person like I'm not collecting about my story. This is this is a part of my story. This is part of uh, a part of the American story. This is this is why Emory uh, is the appropriate place for the materials that we have to find a, a good and comfortable home. And uh, we want every person junior high, high school, senior citizen, anyone who wants to use the materials that we have will be welcome. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not a place just for scholars, just for mm-hmm. students, just mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. It's a place for anyone in the community who wants to, to learn about a, what America is about. Yeah. Through our collection, yes. we want them to do that. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And um, is there anything else y'all want us to know about Pelham? Anything that we may not have or? There's always more. Yeah, yeah right. There's <laughs> always more. more. There's always more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He had such a great sense of humor and he, he loved to laugh. He loved laughing people laugh and, and put people at ease. And it was. Yeah. And as I think I said earlier, there's no, I got to see this figure looming uh, coming over. I was like, oh, good. Uh, Going to get a ta- another chance to have a good conversation with my my friend and yeah. compatriot and colleague. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And but it, it turns out everybody in the library, I think, felt that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even the people at the front desk, he knew the name of every person who worked at the front desk. He, he knew did. The, the, the. He, he thought they were most important. He said the most important people in these buildings are the administrative assistants, the custodians, and the security people. He's like, yes. they run the show, and <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna be friends with them, and and uh, and I'm gonna get to know them. Um, one thing I joke with him because he was often so busy with his curatorial duties and all those kind of things that he didn't often like. Like I was out and about with the children, and he would kind of come in and out, and so yeah, and, uh, and but, but when he would when he would arrive, everyone would be like, oh, and they'd get really excited, and then he's just like, he's like, Nabob, I can't go because people get so excited and they all want to talk to me, and I said, you know, if you weren't, he goes, and I'm, he goes, and I don't have time to talk all the time, blah blah, and then I just said, well, if you weren't like a unicorn, <laughs> you know, it's like they have a unicorn sighting and they get really excited and they want to take. A selfie with you or something you know it's just they don't believe that you're there so it's you know it's so funny so he and 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 I you know of course in jest but he yeah he just was one of those people that people always got excited I got excited when I saw him you know and that and quite personally I was remembering that um you know and I remember that a lot is that just a year ago um, you know, I got excited when I saw him coming up the sidewalk. So I'm sure people who weren't married to him got excited too. So he was delightful. And um, yeah, and we all got that honor. Yes, indeed we did. Our lives are richer. Our lives are richer for having known him. Community Conversations is produced by Lolita Rowe and Nick Twimlow. Jacob Chisenhall is our editor. Music created by Sister Sai. We are grateful for the support provided by our colleagues at the Rose Library. Jennifer King, director of the Rose Library, and Yolanda Cooper, dean of Emory Libraries. Special thanks to Naval McDaniels and Randall Burkett for sharing their stories. Join us next month for a conversation between poet David Trinidad and scholar Heather Clark who will talk about her research on Sylvia Plath.